Please turn me in your Bibles to Psalm chapter 15. It's a short psalm, uh, but one uh, that is of great import, I think, for us as we consider our present pilgrimage in this life. Psalm chapter 15. It's a psalm of David. He says this, O Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell on your holy hill? He who walks blamelessly and does what is right. He who speaks the truth in his heart. Who does not slander with his tongue. Who does no evil to his neighbor, nor takes up a reproach against his friend. In whose eyes a vile person is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord. Who swears to his own hurt and does not change. Who does not put out his money at interest. Does not take a bribe against the innocent. He who does these things shall never be moved. This is God's word. Let's pray. Our gracious God and Father, please illuminate our hearts that we might understand your word and sing songs of praise to our great and triune God in whose name we pray. Amen. In the early second century, there was this young governor in uh, the region of what is modern day Turkey, uh, in northern Turkey, Bithynia. Uh, or Bithynia, I'm sorry, who wrote uh, to the Roman Emperor Trajan asking what he is to do with Christians in that particular region. At this point in uh, history, Christianity had been outlawed and the punishment was one of death. But the governor of the region, a man by the name of Pliny the Younger, was bereft of any moral reason as to why he should put these Christians to death. So he writes uh, to the Roman Emperor seeking counsel and he says this, he says, I don't know what to make of these Christians. When they are captured and interrogated, and I quote, they declared that the sum of their guilt or error had only amounted to this, that on an appointed day they had been accustomed to meet before daybreak and to recite a hymn to Christ as if to a God, to bind themselves by an oath not for the commission of any crime, but an oath whereby they would abstain from theft, robbery, adultery, and breach of faith, and that they would not deny a deposit when it was claimed. Right? Even the civil magistrate in the second century admitted and recognized there's something different about this people. Of course, we have to ask ourselves, where did Christians learn such behavior? Why bind oneself to a vow, even if it meant being reckoned a curse by the world around them? I think what's striking is the litany of uh, descriptions that uh, Pliny gives regarding this oath, whatever it looked like uh, that Christians took, uh, so much of what they vow not to do is found in this category of uh, this code of conduct found here in Psalm 15. Might I suggest that passages in Scripture like this one before us this evening describes concretely what the path of the righteous actually looks like. If you recall, this is how the Psalter even begins. Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the ungodly, but walks the path of righteousness. What does that actually look like in the day today? 
In one sense, we could call this psalm the pilgrim's charter. His code of conduct as to how he is to navigate this life as a sojourner passing through to the heavenly city. Again, a very simple passage, but I think we need to stop and consider this text this evening and consider our own conduct as uh, it centers on the most important question that the human race will ever face. What sort of man can dwell with God? I'd like us to consider this in three parts this evening. First, we'll consider that uh, of the pilgrim. You see that here in verse 1, the sojourner. And then verses 2 to the beginning of verse 5, we'll consider the pilgrim's practice. And then finally, that last line in the psalm, God's promise. So the pilgrim, his practice, and God's promise. I think what's really striking is even in the ordering of this uh, inspired hymnal, the Psalms, we find certain Psalms have been collected together that share a common theme or arrangement. And for the past five or so Psalms, these Psalms have considered the character and the conduct of the wicked. But now the tables turn. Now the focus shifts Uh, Not on what does it mean to uh, be wicked, but now what does it mean to walk the path of the righteous? You read through the Psalms as you read through uh, so many poems, you will find so much poetic imagery and metaphor. But I think what's striking about this Psalm is that it is largely bereft of really any type of poetic imagery. I think what is most striking is, in fact, its simplicity The only image that is really given to us, the only metaphor is that of the sojourner, the pilgrim. Who is it that can dwell, who can sojourn in the tents of our God? David puts before us two progressive pictures. First, the tabernacle in the wilderness, and then the temple as it sits upon Mount uh, Moriah in the center of Jerusalem. This focus is on God's dwelling place in the history of the people of God. You read uh, through uh, the book of Moses, the books of Moses, how the tabernacle is uh, constructed and erected according to the divine pattern that Moses is shown on the mountain. And the Lord makes His way in the wilderness with His people, a temple on the go. Uh, But now, towards the end of David's life, David begins to make preparations for building a temple, one that he's not allowed to construct. uh, And that task belongs to his son. But David still has great hopes of seeing a more permanent dwelling place for the Lord of hosts. And once the ark finally makes it to Jerusalem, once it has a resting place, every year, uh, every family would go up to Jerusalem three times a year to offer sacrifices to the Creator uh, and Redeemer of mankind. Again, you read through Moses and it tells of the cultic purity required to enter the holy place. If you were to enter the tents of the living God, if you were to enter His holy holy course, there's the necessity of a priesthood. There is the necessity of sacrifice and of all these ritual washings, what we might call those cultic ceremonies. But yet, as we read this psalm, 
when David says what is required, he focuses not on those ritual washings and ceremonies, but on the very things that this gets to the heart of, the character of the individual. What a danger it would be to reduce religion to a series of cultic practices and still miss the bigger picture. Uh, Even as we've been considering uh, Matthew's gospel and John's message over the past few weeks, uh, 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 John the Baptist, that uh, even uh, the, the baptism of John is to signify something much deeper, that this outer washing is to signify the inner cleansing that takes place and that only comes through repentance and faith. You know, just even thinking about this past week in the news and seeing people uh, out on the streets or perhaps uh, friends on social media, how many people around the world this past week celebrated Fat Tuesday? A night of uh, debauchery and all sorts of immorality, this sort of kind of get the sin out of your system before entering into uh, another season as people prepare in a very pagan sort of way. Um, what they think uh, Christianity truly entails, that, that, uh, that the religious faith is somehow marked by outward religious decor. How many people think, oh, here's my one night to sin as much as I want because, ah, Wednesday comes. And, and by partic- participating in you know, Ash Wednesday or whatever all these other you know, things that are, are being called, you know, by doing that now I can find uh, forgiveness. What, what an awful way to view religion. This is the very thing that the prophets criticize. People who use uh, the temple, the temple, the temple, as Jeremiah says, uh, as a rabbit's foot to indulge in sexual practices and sinful and idolatrous practices. The Lord indicts Israel for that same behavior. This is Isaiah chapter 1. It says, Your new moons and appointed feasts my soul hates. They have become a burden to me. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. See, true religion is not seen in a multitude of all this outward pomp and circumstance. What is it that God requires? What is it that the Lord is looking for? What sort of man can dwell in the presence of of a holy God. Similar question is asked in Psalm 24. Who can ascend the hill of the Lord? It's not just the man who has the clean hands, those ritual washings, but it's also the man who has to have that pure heart. And here, the psalm focuses on the purity of heart that is required to dwell in the midst of a holy God. True religion is more than superficial piety. It is more than going through the religious motions. And I'm not trying to uh, call out particular practices. I'm trying to say, this is what the Lord is getting at in Scripture. What does He require? Jesus says, go and learn this. I require and demand obedience and not sacrifice. Stop using religious practices as a religious talisman to say, ah, yes, My salvation is secure. I was baptized either as an infant or as a teenager or as an adult. And because of that, I can continue to go about and do my own thing. 
How many people around us who attend church on an even semi-regular basis would say, should we, con- should we continue in sin that grace may abound? How many people, practically speaking, go certainly? And they treat the cross of Christ as a rabbit's foot. That is not the type of person that will be able to dwell in the presence of a holy God. In order to sojourn, to dwell in the tents of the righteous, what God requires is the cleansing of the soul, a soul that has been polluted by sin. And as we saw in our last psalm last month, in Psalm 15, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. This is a need that every human being on the face of this earth, from Adam forward, with the exception of one man, the Lord Jesus Christ, was required That for him to enter the living courts, his own, her own, personal sin must be reckoned with. To have a soul that is cleansed by the filth of sin. To have a heart that has now been tuned to keep in step with the spirit of holiness, as Paul writes in Galatians chapter 5. From the outset, we must recognize that this is not simply, David's not getting at a pull yourself up by your bootstrap approach to morality, where he just kind of gives a certain laundry list of the type of people, so long everything is nice on the outside. This is not a self derived holiness. I think the very reason that David begins by focusing on the image of the tabernacle and the temple underlies this particular emphasis that, of course, there has to be a sacrifice for sin. Of course there has. But there really does have to be holiness of life as well. Doesn't the author of Hebrews say this, that without holiness, no one can see the Lord? And so right away we are told that to treat the sacrificial system as some form of lucky charm fails to recognize what God truly requires. And so in verses 2-5, to we're given a sketch of the conduct of the man who makes his pilgrimage to the gates of Zion. The man who longs to make heaven his true home. This man is blameless. You see that here in verse 2. His, uh, he makes it his aim to conduct his whole life with integrity. He practices the good. He seeks to do what is right at all times. I think what's so striking is this language of blamelessness. I don't think necessarily means perfection because we will see in the Old Testament of particular men of old who clearly did sin and yet they're called blameless. This is speaking to the whole conduct of one's life. You think of Noah, a man who is blameless in God's sight. And yet, of course, we read in Genesis 9 or 10 how he has sinned. This is not dealing with sinless perfectionism. This is talking about the overall trajectory of a man's life. Here is one who knows what God requires, and he makes it his chief end uh, to walk this particular path that he might see his Savior face to face. There's a blamelessness in the sense that there is no dissonance between what is in his heart and what comes out of his mouth. He speaks with simplicity and sincerity. You see here, he speaks the truth in his heart. What a contrast this is with the wicked of Psalm 14 who speaks that of practical atheism in his heart. In Psalm 14, we're told of the man who speaks in his heart that there is no God. 
the folly and the madness that comes from such a heart, of the man who flatters with his lips and devises evil in his innermost being, this is absent from the righteous man. Here is a man who what he thinks is what he says, and what he says is what he thinks, and what he says and what he thinks accords with God's righteous character. Here stands a pilgrim who has so ordered his life that all that he does, that all that he thinks, all that he loves, centers around a single goal, that one day he will in fact dwell in the tent of the righteous and the courts of his God. What is it that David says later on in the Psalms? It is better to spend one day in your courts than thousands elsewhere. To kind of riff on John Milton, it'd be better to be, you know, a plumber in heaven than to be the king of hell. This is not a mere external righteousness. This describes a man whose heart has been cleansed from his sin and iniquity. That his transgressions have been reckoned with, and we see actual holiness being cultivated progressively and ongoing and thoroughly throughout his life. According to 1 John, this is the litmus test as to whether or not one has truly been born of God. 1 John 4, 7 and 8, everyone who has been born of God loves, for God is love, and the man who does not love does not know God. Here's been a man, here stands a man made holy, and so he walks the path of holiness, even as the Scriptures tell us seven times in the Old Testament and in the New, you are to be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. Again, to drive home this point, David is not articulating a works-based righteousness. Paul himself says in Ephesians chapter 2, for it is by grace that you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no man may boast. Why? For we are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus. Why? Why have we been saved and justified by grace alone, through faith alone, by Christ alone, so that we might walk in those good works that God has prepared beforehand? Such holiness of life is not restricted to mere religious observances. David engages in a poetic wordplay here to show that this gets down uh, to real practical application. What does Christian character look like in this life? And here we're given this representative list. Who can dwell with God? And here comes the wordplay. It is the one who does no ra'ah to his re'ah. It is the man who does no calamity to his neighbor. The man who does no evil to his friend. He does not seek to disgrace uh, companions. He does not seek to shame his family. Nor does he venture out to taunt his neighbor. Do we wish to dwell in the courts of our God? Well, it's a big picture question. David brings it down to practical matters. Do you wish to dwell with God? Well, let me ask you this. How do you speak to your neighbor face to face? How do you speak about your neighbor behind his back? 
Or do you say about him in your heart? Do you seek to ensure his safety and security? If you do not practice these things, is your heart truly set on the things of heaven? I've been reading through John Owen the past few weeks on the duties of uh, being spiritually or heavenly minded. It's the very thing that Paul commands his church, uh, Christ church in Colossians 3. Uh, beloved, if you have been raised with Christ, since Christ sits above, you need to set your affections on the things that are above, not on the things of this earth. What are those earthly things? Well, it is, consists in those corrupted deeds. What are the things of heaven? It is the fruit that is produced by the Spirit who has cleansed our hearts and washed us clean. In verse 4, we find a man who not only lives in harmony, as it were, with himself, where there's no dissonance between uh, the mouth and the heart from which abundant kindness flows. Here we find a man who we might say lives in harmony with nature. He lives in harmony with God's created order. Let me explain what I mean. There's a couple things going on here in verse 4. The first is this, that here is a man who loves the things that God loves and hates the things that God hates. Quite literally, verse 4 tells us that this is the man in whose eyes the despicable man is despised. Uh, That the man who will dwell in the courts of the righteous is the man who sees wickedness for what it is, doesn't wink his eye at it. Doesn't kind of chuckle off to the side, give approval of it. Here is a man who does not call evil good and good evil. There is a clear moral compass that is ordered according to God's unchanging moral law. Such a man does not flatter the wicked. He does not pretend that the deeds of the wicked are somehow acceptable. Right? That's the great indictment of Romans chapter 1. As God's coming wrath is set to fall upon the nations, not only those who engage in all sorts of immorality, but also those who give their approval to them. What an indictment that is to the spirit of this age which claims not only that every man has the right to do what is acceptable in his own eyes, but also demands that you accept it as well even if you uh, find it morally repugnant. There's a pressure from the spirit of the age to, to, to so uh, reshape our own hearts to where we uh, are, are that the pressure is being put to we, where we can approve of sin, even if such sinful practices are not our own. And yet, according to Romans 1, God condemns it. According here to verse 4, God com- t- condemns that. The despicable man who does despicable things is despised in the eyes of the righteous. He looks at that and he says, that is wicked. The righteous man condemns sin as sin. He refuses to walk in the counsel of the wicked. He will not even heed their counsel, as Psalm 1 puts it. But instead, here is a man who honors the man who fears the Lord. And what is the fear of the Lord? As we're told over and over again in Proverbs, it is the beginning of wisdom. If it is the fool who says in his heart there is no God, then it is the wise man who says there is a God. And I ought to so order my life that I might dwell with him forever. 
Second thing we see here in verse 4 is that here's a man who maintains his integrity even to his own detriment. The righteous pilgrim abides by a moral code. He maintains his integrity even when it is inconvenient. He will not renege on his promises. Here stands the man who images his Creator. And as Scripture says, this is the very thing that the Lord does with us. Malachi chapter 3, I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O Israel, are not consumed. In other words, when, when the Lord speaks to the people of God through Malachi, He says, why is it that I have not consumed you in my wrath? Well, it's because I've made a vow. I have made a covenant of peace. He bears with us in all of our failings and long-suffering with long-suffering. And so He calls us to model Him in that same practice that when we make a promise... We are called to abide by that promise even when it hurts us. David describes then the purity of a heart untainted by greed. Here is a man who does not extort the poor in their calamity. He does not engage in what we might call price gouging. Nor does he charge for basic needs and interest. Right? It was the last time you heard a sermon against usury. And yet, that's something that we see uh, condemned in Scripture. Uh, the, the man who uh, seeks to charge his brother at interest for the things that he needs. Here's a man who does not wink the eye at injustice by taking money under the table. He does not pass laws or render verdicts that favor the rich and powerful because he's able to gain some type of material advantage from it. Here is a man who abides by a moral code of righteousness and will not allow that moral code to be altered. Rather than money, it is truth that guides his path as his life is characterized by justice and by mercy. But what is promised to the man who walks such a path? Of course, it begins with that question, who is it that can dwell in the tents of the Lord, the tent of the Lord God Almighty? And yet here we find that last line, an, an added promise in the midst of all this, as the pilgrim makes his way, as it were, to Zion to the dwelling place of God, the man who walks in integrity, the man who treats his neighbor kindly, the man who speaks the truth in love, the Lord Himself gives an assured promise that He shall dwell in safety and security. He shall never be moved. Psalm 46, though the mountains might quake and totter and fall into the sea, they might move. The same word we find here, this man will not be moved. Here is a man who is unshakable, and so he will be granted entrance into an unshakable kingdom. To dwell in the tents of the Lord is to dwell in safety. For God has promised to be a refuge for the refugee, a shelter in the midst of the storm, and the only asylum that there is to hide oneself from the coming wrath. Listen to what Isaiah himself says in chapter 33. Who among us can live with the consuming fire? Who among us can live with continual burning? And to see who walks righteously and speaks with sincerity. 
It is he who rejects unjust gain. It is he who shakes his hands so that they hold no bribe. There is no kind of handshake, kind of passing of a bribe taking place. It is the man who stops his ears from hearing about bloodshed. It is the man who shuts his eyes from looking upon evil. He is the one who will dwell on the heights and his refuge will be the impregnable rock. His bread will be given to him and his water will be sure. Though the gates of hell may assault uh, this individual, he dwells within a kingdom against the gates uh, of which hell cannot overtake. They will not prevail against the growth of God's righteous kingdom. See, on the day of God's wrath, there will be no safe quarter given to the sinner who uses religion as a mask for treachery. Only the one who hungers and thirsts for righteousness will be filled. As the psalmist himself says in Psalm 27, for in the day of trouble, he will conceal me in his tabernacle. In the secret place of his tent, he will hide me. And he will lift me up on a rock. And so let me hide in your tent forever. Let me take refuge in the shelter of your wings. This is a very practical psalm. The path to safety is the path of righteousness. No matter what trouble it might bring, the man who walks this path will never be shaken because it is a pathway marked in the footsteps of our Savior who Himself has gone before us. I think the psalm presents to us a diagnostic check, a descriptive mark of what genuine piety really looks like. Uh, To uh, change the metaphor ever so slightly, Psalm 15 is a spiritual roadmap that tells whether or not you are on the right path. Because without holiness, none may see the Lord. And that is David's goal here. Who is it that could dwell with the Lord God Almighty? Again, David is not arguing for some form of proto-Pelagianism as if somehow you can earn your way into God's courts by your own good works. The righteousness of every saint is the same. It is not a holiness that is derived from itself, but it is a holiness that is derived from its head, the Lord Jesus Christ. The very picture of what the tabernacle and the temple pointed to, that God has come to dwell with man and He has made full provision for sin, that He declares us to be righteous, but also that He actually makes us righteous as well. The gospel is so much more than justification. It is certainly not less. God declares us to be truly righteous, but then He also makes us what He has declared us to be. So why Paul will say uh, in, in so many words throughout his letters, be what you are. If you are a saint, if God has called you righteous, then act righteously. Psalm 15 reminds us that God is concerned with more than mere religious ritual. He delights in real holiness. Again, not the self-derived, pick-yourself-up-by-your-bootstrap sort of holiness, but a holiness that comes from being washed in the blood of Christ and walking in the things that God delights in, learning to love the things that the Lord loves and to hate the things that He hates. 
Come now, Isaiah says, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are as scarlet, they shall be white as snow. See, Christ's death was not intended as mere fire insurance. We have been saved by grace alone to walk in those good steps that God has prepared for us. And if we are strangers in this world, then our character must be strange to this world. No wonder Pliny the Younger was left scratching his head as he considered the character of the people of God. Citizens of heaven ought to exhibit the imprint of our heavenly destination. We abide by a higher code of conduct. Though there might be things that this world approves of that might even be legal, we abide by a higher law. It's the very thing that is signified in our baptism. Holy unto the Lord. Sins washed clean, passing uh, through uh, the waters of the Red Sea, as it were, leaving the powers of sin and Satan behind and making our way towards that heavenly Zion. Learning to be holy as the Lord Himself is holy. In commenting on this particular psalm, Calvin writes this, he says, The Holy Spirit teaches us that serving God with outward ceremonies is not enough. We who profess to be Christians must strenuously exert ourselves to lead holy and unspotted lives. Perhaps many of you might be familiar with the the so-called Hippocratic Oath. The oath that doctors would make to treat the ill to the best of one's ability to preserve the patient's privacy and to teach the secrets of medicine to the next generation. Of course, any doctor would tell you that there's more to being a doctor than this. You don't simply get a medical degree just because you learned the Hippocratic Oath, but it provides an overarching guide, a rule of thumb for how you are to conduct yourself as a physician. It is an oath that summarizes succinctly the conduct of a physician's task and calling. And might I suggest to you this evening that we could consider Psalm 15 as the Christian's form of the Hippocratic Oath. It is the code of conduct for the pilgrim who seeks to make the tents, uh, the tent of the Lord his own dwelling place. And do you long to dwell with Lord, the Lord forever? If not, what is it, what is it that you are, have set your affections on instead? Might I suggest that there is something far better and far greater than anything that this world will ever have to offer you. But if you do long to dwell in the courts of the Lord, take note then of what the Lord requires. To have a righteousness imputed and received by faith that produces a real righteousness that bears fruit unto everlasting life. Let us pray. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, as we consider uh, the code of conduct for what You require, we see how short we fall, uh, even here, even still. We ask that You would forgive us of our sins, and that by Your Spirit, You would work in us that righteousness that You love. Even as You have imputed us and reckoned us righteous, we ask that You would work righteousness in us uh, as well. That we might be holy all of our days and so reflect the character of the One who is 
holy, holy, holy. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.